This is the First Emmanuel Lutheran Church podcast. For more information about us, who we are, and how to get connected, check us out online at filministries.org. Today's message is delivered by Pastor Randy Roche. If you brought your Bible along with you, it's Romans chapter 3. If not, there's a Bible in front of you, page 941, because in chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 19 today, all the way through the end of that chapter. Before we look at these verses, let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your word. It is your power unto salvation to all who believe, and we pray that you would bless us with those believing hearts. Amen. So by way of introduction to this particular section of Scripture, what Paul's really going to do is summarize chapters 1 and 2, and then he's going to get into a pivotal point, a turning point in his letter. So by way of introduction, as you see on your sermon outline, he says uh, we're all sinful, every one of us. Summarizes chapters 1 and 2 with these verses, 19 and 20 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, in other words, everybody, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We all want to be saved. Everybody wants to have eternal life. The question is, how do you have eternal life? How do you possess eternal life? And in chapters 1 and 2, Paul was saying, we can't do this. We're lost people. But again, here comes this turning point. Because what Paul is going to say is, righteousness makes you one with God. Righteousness gives you eternal life. But even though we are not righteous people, we are unrighteous, but we have a righteous God. And it is amazing how God treats sinners who deserve nothing, but receive everything. As a matter of fact, the righteousness of God is so important that in the following verses, and there aren't many of them today, but in these following verses, Paul talks about the righteousness of God for Times, and you'll see that on the sermon outline. And the first is in verse 21. And he talks about uh, the righteousness that comes apart from the law. He, he writes this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets is a term meaning Holy Scripture. That Holy Scripture points toward this righteousness that we need, but it's not our righteousness, it's the righteousness of God. But it is kind of a natural tendency for human beings to think that they have to prove themselves before God. That they have to, well, they have to be able to show God that they're worthy of His love, His acceptance. We were created to serve God, to obey God, to live in relationship with God. And as you know, because of sin, that relationship was severed. And it's not because God ran from us, it's we separated ourselves from God. 
You see, we have this perfect God, and we are no longer perfect people. We have distanced ourselves. And yet it's in our spiritual DNA for us to want to go off and find God. That's why so often, even, even for those of us who are Christians, so often we wonder if God would even love the likes of us. Oh, we know Jesus and we love him and we believe in him, but yet sometimes we look in the mirror and what looks back at us is all of our sin and imperfection. Everything that Paul talked about in chapters 1 and 2 seemed to be manifested in us. And so we wonder, do we need to shape up so that God will love us? I've mentioned this before, but if you take all the religions of the world, all the ones that came before Christ, all the ones that are here today and all those that ever will be, if you take a look at all the religions of the world with the exception of Christianity, every one of them teach that you and I must do something in order to be loved by whatever God they serve or worship. And they talk about paths of purity or gates of goodness or the roads of righteousness. And they give us certain precepts uh, to, to follow so that we can become more righteous and closer to God. And this was the problem of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. You know, theologically, the Pharisees and Jesus were pretty close because their bottom line was this. In order to be one with God, in order to have eternal life, you needed to be righteous. So if we said to the Pharisees, is that true? Do you believe in order to be one with God, in order to have eternal life, that you have to be righteous? And the Pharisees would say, yes, definitely. And we would ask Jesus, Jesus, do you believe that for us to be one with God and for us to have eternal life, that we would need to be righteous? And Jesus would say, well, of course. They agreed there. The difference came in this. How does one become righteous? And the Pharisees were telling the people, you have to develop your own righteousness. The term is self-righteous. And in order to do this, they took God's commands and they added certain precepts and laws and rules and regulations. For instance, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What God meant was set time aside from all your other activities every week and worship. Worship me. Well, the Pharisees started adding things to it. Like there were only a certain amount of steps you could take on the Sabbath day or you would break the rules. You couldn't do any work whatsoever and they would consider certain things like, well, when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Oh, that was work, lawbreaker. When the disciples walk through the fields and pull the heads of the grain off, rub their hands together, blew away the chaff and ate the kernels. Oh, rule breakers. You see, the more rules you make, the more rules you can keep, and the more righteous you become. That was their philosophy, and this is where they departed from Jesus' theology because there is no way we can make ourselves righteous. Uh, Last week in our gospel, Jesus put it this way. In in essence, what he was saying, you really want to work your way to heaven? That's fine. Go ahead. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How are you doing? I'm not doing well. You know, the problem is 
if we want to work our way into heaven, perfection is the only option. I like baseball. I love baseball. I loved playing baseball. Then I don't know, maybe it's because you could fail seven out of ten times at the plate and still be in the Hall of Fame. Isn't that great? If you're playing football and you're a kicker, if you miss seven out of ten field goals, goodbye. If you're playing basketball, you're at the free throw line, and you only make three of every ten, good night, you're gone. Baseball, holy cow. You had three at-bats today and you got one hit? We love you. Hall of Famer. This is why I love playing baseball. Unfortunately, I was more like two hits out of every ten, so I'd never sit by my phone when Concordia's doling out Hall of Fame nominees. Perfection. We don't come close. God doesn't say, you know, three out of ten or five out of ten or 99.9% of the time you're really, really good. No, it's perfection. So if we're not perfect, how can we be righteous? If we can't do it for ourselves, where do we find this righteousness? And this is the pivot that Paul makes in his letter to the Romans. And he says, this righteousness is available to everyone, to the Jews, to the Gentiles. It's available to everyone. Uh, We're going to start reading here in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's no more worrying or wondering, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Now, if we think about people um, who are righteous, Oh, man, we could come up with a few names, right? Uh, Billy Graham, there's one. Now, there's a righteous guy dedicated himself to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, he had a faith in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Now, there's a guy who's getting to heaven. But how about C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist before he became the preeminent apologist and author of Christianity in the last century? An atheist until a righteous God planted a faith in his heart. Or how about David Berkowitz? Anybody remember this name from years ago? David Berkowitz? Anyone remember that? I mean, we'll give you his, his little nickname. Son of Sam. Anybody remember him now? Yes, a murderer who prefers today to be called the son of hope. He's become a Christian while incarcerated. He was, uh, not too long ago, was up for parole and uh, a newspaper reporter said, are you, are you think you're going to get it? You're hoping to get it? And he said, in a way, I hope I don't because I don't want to leave my ministry behind because there are so many others who need to hear of Jesus. Oh, let's go closer to home. How about Jeff Dahmer? I think it was 17 lives that he took. And yet he 
says that he came to faith in Jesus. And he even said that he would be going to heaven even though in this world he deserved death. He understood that. But I remember right after uh, Jeff Dahmer talked about his Christian faith uh, that he would be going to heaven. Uh, I was at the bank that week, and I went up. It was my turn at the teller, and, and the teller said, uh, not a member of our church, but knew I was a pastor, and said, do you think Jeff Dahmer will go to heaven? I said, yeah, sure. He killed 17 people. I said, I know. Well, you can't go to heaven if you killed 17 people. I said, well, what happens if you killed one person and you came to faith? Could you go to heaven then? She said, well, that I could see. I said, well, how about two people? Could you kill two people and go to heaven? She said, yeah, I suppose that one would work. I said, how about three? If you kill three people and you believe in Jesus, can you still get to heaven? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It was getting harder for her. I said, how about five people? Can you kill five people and be able to get to heaven? Oh, boy, I don't know. How about seven people? She said, what are you trying to get at? I said, I want to know what the quota is. How many people can I kill and still get to heaven? And I said to her, you know, from the earthly standpoint, I agree with you. I, I cannot comprehend how someone would be so heinous in the way he took life could ever be loved by God. But I said what it demonstrates to me is how deep and high and wide and long is the love of God. The amazing love of God that can cover the sins of a criminal. Oh, by the way, we all are. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Oh yeah, by the way, um, when we're thinking about people who deserve heaven, you know the guy who wrote this letter to the Romans was Paul. Uh, Before that, he was called Saul, and you probably remember what his job was, right? Yeah, try to bring down the Christian church, take the lives of Christians. And yet the Holy Spirit turned his heart so that he would become one of the greatest missionaries of all time. This is the immenseness of God's grace. And it all comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. This is what Paul gets at in verse 25, the second half of it. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, and his divine patience, he had passed over former sins. So what Paul's saying is that uh, There were sinners in the world, obviously, before Jesus came as the sacrifice for the world's sin. But he's not saying that God just ignored those sins in the past. He's not saying that people were not held accountable for those sins of the past. What he's saying is that God is just amazingly patient that all sins would be forgiven by Jesus. You see, Paul's talking to Christians who know something about animal sacrifices. And these sacrifices were made on behalf of people. And the animal sacrifices were not the ultimate sacrifice. 
And every year they had to continue to sacrifice and sprinkle the blood in the holy place because sin continued. It was a reminder of them that they needed that continual forgiveness of sins. But the animal sacrifice was also to remind them that the ultimate sacrifice was going to come into the world. And now Paul says to the Romans, that sacrifice came into the world, that Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world was Jesus. And that he was sacrificed once and for all, for all sin, for all guilt, for all people, for all time. And so all this righteousness of God, all this grace of God is ours, accessible by faith. And this is verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just. God is perfect. He is the judge of all humanity. And his justice says sin must be paid for. And the wages of sin is death. But he's not just the just judge. He is the justifier. He is the one who makes us just. He's not only the judge, but he becomes the sacrifice for us. Jesus is the just one who becomes the justifier, making us right with the Father in heaven. Yeah, but Jesus, <laughs> it's perfection that's demanded. And I can't live that life. And Jesus said, I know, I got it for you. I lived the perfect life. I'm going to give you credit for my life that I lived. I'm going to let you have my righteousness. Oh, that's great, Jesus. But what about all those sins that I've committed? And I know I'm not going to be perfect. What happens to, what happens to that guilt and that shame and that burden? And Jesus said, I carried that for you to the cross. I paid your debt. I've taken care of it. How can I be sure, Jesus? Well, my resurrection from the grave proves that my sacrifice was accepted by your heavenly Father. And you are forgiven and considered righteous and just. So what Paul says in this time of pivot is that we have to stop thinking all about ourselves. Am I good enough? And we just need to remember it's all about Jesus. Paul concludes, starting here in verse 27, what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Well, no. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Do we just ignore it? Oh, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You see, for uh, Christians, when we look at the law, when God says do this and don't do that, uh, we don't look at that as the ladder to work our way into heaven. Not at all. Jesus did that already. 
We don't look at the law as a manner in which to get to heaven. No, we look at the law this way. Because I'm going to heaven, I don't have to do those things. I get to do those things. I get to follow the path that God has laid out before me because he loves me and I love him. It's my attitude of gratitude. And so it's not about how good I am or how bad I am. It's about how wonderful Jesus is. It's about Jesus who did everything needful for our salvation. It's about Jesus who took our place in this world and on the cross and in the tomb. It's about Jesus who is risen and ascended to guard and guide our hearts and our minds by his word. It's about Jesus who gives us the true treasures of life, faith and forgiveness, life and salvation. So when you get caught up in this, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Remember, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's all about Jesus, who absolutely loves you. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you want to learn more about First Emmanuel Lutheran Church, visit filministries.org. We'll see you next week, and God bless.